istu. Ja selkeästi Esmi saa heti vainun siitä, että lähellä on lenkkimakkaraa. Upeasti Esme menee koko houkutusten And the dog finally made it, right? How many of you can relate to that golden retriever? Are you more like that first dog? Just boom, you're right there, point A to point B. Nothing phases you, nothing gets in your way. Or are you more like that golden retriever where you're like, oh, look, a toy. Oh, look, some food, some shiny objects. I know that for me, I am far more like that golden retriever than I am for the first dog. And I think that one of the things that is very clear is that we live in a very distracted age. We're in the midst of a series of messages entitled Unexpected Togetherness, and we're talking about the things that hinder community and how we can overcome those things. And last week, we talked about our incredible desire to be in a hurry, in a rush, and how that impedes community that God has in mind for us. And this week, we're going to talk about a similar and related topic, and we're going to talk about what does it mean to be distracted. I want to share with you a great story from the Bible about distraction. It comes from the Gospel of Luke in the 10th chapter. It's the famous story of Mary and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me out. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. May God bless not only the receiving and the hearing of his holy word, but that we may take it to heart and plant it in our minds and live out what God calls us to do in response to his word. Martha is in the presence of Jesus. She is in the presence of the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited king. He is there in her home, and she is totally missing it. The reason that the Bible says that she's totally missing it is that she, Martha, was distracted by her many tasks. 
I believe that one of the defining characteristics of not just Martha's life in that moment, but in our age, is that we are distracted by our many tasks. Today, we would refer to this as multitasking. We are the kind of people who do not do one thing at a time. We do not give anything our full attention. We do lots of things at once. And we think that we are so sophisticated today, that we are so efficient, that we are so effective, that we can do lots of different things and spin lots of different plates. But have you ever stopped long enough to wonder what's going on in your mind while you're multitasking? Or maybe even more importantly, what's happening to us as we chronically multitask. Well, this is a guy by the name of Daniel Levin, and let's see what he says as a cognitive scientist about multitasking. Multitasking has been found to increase the production of stress hormone cortisol as well as the fight or flight hormone adrenaline, which can overstimulate your brain and cause mental fog or scrambled thinking. Multitasking creates a dopamine addiction feedback loop, effectively rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. To make matters worse, the prefrontal cortex has a novelty bias, meaning that its attention can be easily hijacked by something new, the proverbial shiny objects that we use to entice infants, puppies, particularly golden retrievers, and kittens. We answer the phone, look up something on the internet, check out our emails, send an SMS, and each of these things tweaks the novelty, seeking reward, seeking centers of the brain, causing a burst of endogenous opioids. No wonder it feels so good. So let's summarize what the scientists say. Multitasking leads to more stress, higher anxiety, overstimulation, greater confusion, and addiction to novelty. So of course we would pump the air brakes on multitasking, right? I mean, we're, we're not gonna live that way, right? Oh, and certainly we're not gonna train up the next generation to live that way right? Well, several years ago, our family was on a vacation. We were on a cruise, and there's this great huge foyer area. When you come onto the cruise, it's kind of the heart of the ship, and they were doing a special activity that we hadn't signed up for because our kids were older, but we had just stumbled across this activity. It was an activity for younger children, and this was not just any cruise, this was a Disney cruise, so they were all themed Disney activities, and the activity we stumbled across was this. It's called Jack Jack's Diaper Dash. And in essence, as I can show you some pictures here, it was, they create some racing lanes, they take children who are not walking but crawling, and they put one set of parents on the other side, on one side, another set of parents on the other side, and it's basically racing children. Because this is at open sea, apparently the racing of children does not violate the sovereignty rules of one particular country. So apparently it's okay to race children when you're at open sea. And so in order to help this experience, they have the parent at the other side calling the child, and they also gave each of the parents a doll, not just any doll, but the Jack-Jack doll from The Incredibles. They weren't even selling this at the time in the stores, and so this was a coveted item, and uh, they lined them all up, the children are all sitting there, and they say, ready, set, 
go and the parents start calling the children and they're waving the doll around and the children start to crawl like two or three steps and then they sit down and they're just kind of checking things out. <laughs> and the parents are like, come on, come on, Tommy, you can do it. Come on over here, Tommy. And Tommy's kind of looking around and the children are looking around and they're not coming. So it wasn't enough for just the voice of the parent. It wasn't enough even with the shiny object of the toy. And so do you know what one of the parents did? One of the parents reached into his pocket and pulled out his cell phone and turned it on and was like, come on, come on, come on. And now the kid is like, woohoo! And the kid's crawling commando style across the the racing track. Then the other parents see what that parent's doing and they're like, oh my kid, my goodness, my kid's not going to go to Harvard now because that kid's going to win. And so, and so they pull out their cell phones and all the parents are waving their cell phones and beckoning the kids to come forward and the kids give there. And, you know, some of the parents give the phone to the kid and they're happy. Some of the other parents put their phone in the pocket because they have discipline and the kid gets mad at them and is going to be in therapy later. I mean, we're not cultivating the next generation to be overstimulated and stressed, and we're not doing that, are we? Certainly not living that way by example. Let's, I mean, let's try to figure this out. Turn to somebody next to you and try to answer this question. How many times do you think that you touch your mobile phone in the course of a day? Turn to somebody next to you and try to answer that question. Okay, well, this is not guesswork. They actually got groups of people to be willing to download an app, and in downloading an app, the phone could actually count the number of times that you touch, swiped, typed on your phone in the course of a day. And an average user touches their mobile phone, average, 2,617 times in the course of a day. But some of you, I mean, some of you are high achievers. Some of you in this room, like, you're like, I've never been average at anything in my life. You're in the top 10%. And if you're in the top 10%, you touch your phone 5,427 times in a day. Now think about that. That means for every waking minute, you're touching your phone 14 times a minute. You're a multitasker. In addition to this, our technology is designed to capture our attention. Last year at the 10th year anniversary of the iPhone, um, they unveiled uh, not only a new product, but a significant new feature of that product. It was called Face ID. So Apple no longer has you unlock your phone with your fingerprint or primarily with a code, but with a reading of your face. And, and there was a little hidden feature within this feature that we weren't really sure about and we eventually discovered. And what we discovered is that if you actually go into your phone, you will notice that with Face ID, there's this feature called require attention for Face ID or attention aware. 
In other words, your phone can tell the difference between if you're just kind of a sideways glance at it or whether or not you are giving it your full attention. And your phone won't open unless you're giving your phone your full attention. Your phone knows if you're paying attention to it or not. Do you know what else knows if you're paying attention to it or not? My wife. She knows if I'm paying full attention to her or not. Your family requires your attention. Your calling from God requires your attention. Your friendships require your attention. Your relationship with God himself requires your attention. Are you attention aware with just your phone or with God? Do you pray to God 5,000 400 plus times in the course of a day? Or do you touch your phone more than you touch the hand of God? You know, long before there was cognitive science as a discipline or the idea of multitasking, Jesus, with ancient wisdom, diagnoses the impact of the way that Martha's living her life. Martha, 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 Martha. You are worried and upset by many things. Think of that. Jesus is diagnosing the impact of an overtaxed life with two conditions, that you're fearful and you're upset. Is it me or is that the condition of the age that we live in? Rising fear and we are more upset than ever before. And that second word, for upset is a remarkable Greek word that Luke uses here. And what he is saying is the word is, because he could have used a lot of different words. He used the word thorobos, which in English is where we get the equivalent of turbulence. Martha, 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 you are causing so much turbulence. And this is a far more severe word than what you would think would be used in its context. When you consider how else the Gospels use this word, thorobos or turbulence is what happens when, at the death of a child and the outcries of the family and the village. Thorobos or turbulence is the outcry of the crowds as they cheer for, people, for Jesus to go to the cross. Martha, you're causing a lot of turbulence. And so what's the answer? The answer is Jesus says, instead of all of these distracted by many tasks, only a few things are needed. Maybe only just one. In other words, Jesus is inviting Martha to simplify her life. And I'll never forget the first time I saw simplification in action. When I went to graduate school in New Jersey, I started dating Kelly. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. I was working at an internship in New York City that paid me a whopping $100 a week. And so I was working a number of hours where I wasn't even making minimum wage. And so you can imagine that taking Kelly out on a date was a major commitment. Uh, I mean, our first date was a, a, a bank-busting date to TGIF Fridays. And I'm pretty sure I just ordered a sandwich because I couldn't afford a regular entree. 
Uh, one of our more common places to go out to eat when we were in New Jersey was a place called Pasta Blitz, which made the Olive Garden look like authentic Italian. <laughs> and, and so this was kind of our normal... Some of you in the back are just getting that right now, which is good. I love, I love the delayed reaction of the flow of the sound waves making their way as the humor. So, so I saved up over time... As, I wanted, as, as things with Kelly started to get more serious, I wanted to take her on a real date. I wanted to take her to a nice restaurant. And, and I didn't just want to take her to any restaurant. I wanted to take her to the hottest, best restaurant in New York City, um, which was called at the time, in one year, award a year after year after year, was called Union Square Cafe. We wanted to go to this place. Now, it's been renovated in this photo since we were there. And so save up the money, we go to Union Square Cafe, and yes, like it's cleaner than any place I've ever been before, and yes, the food was exquisite, but do you know what else? It also only had a limited number of things on the menu. It wasn't like the Cheesecake Factory menu where you're still flipping and, you know, the safer server comes over and says, you know, are you ready to order? I'm like, no, I'm only halfway through the novel here at this point. And it was very simple. It wasn't stuffy, but it was elegant. But here was the thing that shocked me the most. It was the warmest place I think I had ever been. Every, everything from the hospitality and the vibe and the energy. And I knew that something about this place was different. It was later that I discovered that the person, the mastermind, the chef, behind all of this is a guy by the name of Danny Meyer. And Danny Meyer was very successful with Union Square, uh, Union Square Cafe, then started a second restaurant, and then when the complexity level started to get to a certain size, everything was threatening to unravel. So they held like this little kind of hunkered down retreat because they didn't know if things were going to kind of close up. What are we going to do? And Danny Meyer reported that this was the aha moment. The aha moment was this. He said, I realized that how we treat each other is everything. If we do that well, everything else will fall into place. And so Danny went through the process of simplifying one of the most complicated and dangerous industries in the country. Did you know that about an average of a thousand restaurants are started every year in New York City and that within five years, 80% of those restaurants will be closed? An 80% failure rate. And now, on the other side of that, Danny Meyer has created this unbelievable pipeline of barbecue joints to high-end restaurants in New York, all of them successful. How does he do it? He simplifies and simplifies and simplifies to be able to keep the main thing the main thing. He has these kinds of aphorisms to try to live it out. Make the charitable assumption. In other words, when you're in, engaged with somebody, you give them the benefit of the doubt. Put us out of business with your generosity, he tells the team members or employees. Find the yes. Find a way to get to a positive outcome. And no skunking. Meaning like, when a skunk comes nearby, it makes everything smell bad. And, and you can feel that in, in, in an environment that when someone is just really negative, it makes everything really smell bad. 
And so using these aphorisms, he simplifies and trains and equips them to get to where they want to be. And at the end of the day, he says, it's all about this. We take care of people. That's what I felt in that warmth. And the conviction that was within me as a young seminary student is that if a restaurant can do this, so can a church. But most churches are like that restaurant. You know, the world's solution to the problems that we have um, in terms of being in a distracted age is psychologists will often talk about there'll be all kinds of gurus that will teach you about mindfulness. And I think mindfulness has some interesting techniques that are helpful, but I think mindfulness only gets you so far. It's a good start, but it's a bad finish. Because the mindfulness movement comes out of kind of the Eastern religion tradition, which is all about just emptying your mind. And I just have to ask the question for somebody who comes out of a, a Western Christian civilization and be able to say this tradition, yeah, yeah, we want to be mindful, but mindful of what? As Christians, we say we're called to have the mind of Christ, that we're to have his love and his grace and his joy. And so, yes, it's a good thing to simplify. It's a good thing to empty your mind in order to be able to embrace what is truly important. And so it's not just about mindfulness techniques, it's about mindfulness that leads you to this image here, an African portrayal of the image of the non-distracted life of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And do not miss the radical, scandalous nature of this invitation that an uneducated woman was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that he was privileged to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. This phrase, sitting at the feet, was a euphemism, a, a phrase for being a disciple. Mary is being discipled by Jesus in an age where women were not allowed to be disciples. And so one of the implications of this text that I think we have to talk about in today's distracted and turbulent age is that if we want to understand how a woman is supposed to be treated, you look at Jesus and if you want to understand how to deal with privilege and with power, we look to Jesus. That he is our model. That he is our guide. The incredible, inclusive, accepting, and loving embrace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we treat one another. Several years ago, on a frigid, cold day in Washington, D.C., there was a man with a baseball cap dressed all in denim with a banged-up violin case who plopped down in one spot by a trash can in the Washington, D.C. subway system. Opened up the case, threw in some loose change, pulled out the violin, and a near perfect acoustics began to play six of the greatest pieces in all of music history. Began to play, people are walking by. 
hustling, bustling. The person who was playing was none other than Joshua Bell. He was playing a three and a half million dollar instrument and people pay huge sums of money to hear him as he sells out concert halls. And he's right there. They filmed the whole thing. A thousand people or more walk by. Only seven stopped to listen. They're missing it. How about you? Are you missing the music of the maestro? Are you more like the golden retriever? Or are you more like the German shepherd? Are you more like Mary? Or are you more like Martha? So we don't have to live like this anymore. Constantly multitasking, putting ourselves at the center of our own little universes. We don't have to live like this anymore, giving our technology our full attention instead of our friends, our family, and our God. And we don't have to live a society like this anymore, creating all kinds of turbulence around us, anxious, chronically upset. Instead, we can hear the music of the angels sit at the feet of the maestro and joining Mary we can be at the Savior's feet for that is where we belong let's pray together God forgive us for being so distracted that we're running around like crazy that we're in your presence but we're missing it we call it multitasking, but really it's just distracted living. Teach us, Lord, that, that life is not a race, it's not a dash. That we shouldn't give anything our full attention except for you and the people you've called us to love. And so forgive us for being so worried and upset and help us to simplify our lives by sitting at your feet. Lord, make this church the warmest place that people have ever been. Make us not just mindful of one another, aware, but give us the mind of Christ. And help each and every one of us to hear the scandalous, radical invitation that you give to us to be near to you, to be your disciples and to follow your call. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.